Hey, welcome to the Youth Pastor Theologian Podcast, where theology and youth ministry meet. You can learn more about Youth Pastor Theologian online at youthpastortheologian.com or find us on social media at Youth Theologian. I'm your host, Mike McGarry. Thanks for joining us for this conversation about practicing theology and youth ministry. Hey, welcome to the Youth Pastor Theologian Podcast. I'm your host, Mike McGarry, and I'm here with a special guest, Jonathan Dodson. Uh, Jonathan is the pastor of Austin City Life Church, and he's the founder of Gospel-Centered Discipleship, author of multiple books, including uh, The Unwavering Pastor, Leading the Church with Grace in Divisive Times, is the book that he has most recently published and that we're going to be discussing in this episode today. Fun fact, Jonathan and I went to seminary together, so uh, we're looking at each other over the computer screen here, and brother, it's really good to see your face. Yeah, great to see your face. So many fond memories from studying at Gordon-Conwell up on the hill there, and and uh, you know, hammering through theology and classes. And Yeah, so thanks for having me. It's It's great to be here. Yeah, no, it, it's it's my pleasure. And um, I was telling you a little bit before we press the record button that um, you know, I, I myself, I, I think most people who are who have been in ministry for over a decade have uh, dealt with some some church hurt and uh, mm-hmm. sheep who bite and mm-hmm. and such. And um, yeah, when I started reading the Unwavering Pastor, it it really was difficult to to put down and yet at the same time mm. there were there were certain lines that i came across that made me put the book down and um mm. just really kind of meditate and reflect on those so uh thanks for the mm. way this book really ministered to me and i know that's something that uh podcast hosts are supposed to tell their podcast guests um <laughs> but it, it really did um strike a chord um with mm. me and for me. And so I'm really thankful for that. Well, it's a joy to hear, you know, it's a joy to hear the spirit in that, mo- in those moments ministering to you yeah. through my imperfect words and imperfect stories. And, uh, but there is an abundance of grace to be found in our, in our wilderness and in our pain. And so praise the Lord that you, you yeah. are uncovering more of that. Yeah. Amen. Amen. Hey, before we get into uh, talking about uh, the unwavering pastor and uh, why you wrote that and um, how that can uh, encourage and, and bolster up um, maybe some weary youth pastors, uh, I think it's yeah. always fun to get to know our guests as teenagers a little bit. So <laughs> could you uh, hop into the Wayback Machine a little bit and sure. tell us a little bit about your first car, uh, First car accident, speeding ticket, maybe some some fun learning to drive stories here. Oh man, my first car was a midnight blue, nineteen seventy nine Dodge St. Regis. It was as ugly as it sounds. <laughs> uh, Not very you know, No, just a, a ridicule machine. Um, <laughs> I was born in seventy four, so you know it was an old car, um, and uh, that thing was like a boat on wheels. It was like a, it was, it, it, you know, it was a cause for ridicule, but my friends actually rallied around it and they gave it a nickname called the Reach. Nice. And the Reach was just, you know, it had, uh, 
a pincushion ceiling because the headliner wouldn't stay up. So there was mm-hmm. probably a thousand pins trying to keep that up. Yep. You know, it was kind of like the solar system when you looked out with the headlamp in the middle. Um, I think there was a different kind of strap for every door. The uh, power window would not work on the driver's side. So it was the drive through was always awkward, you know, trying to open the door and <laughs> <laughs> order something and then close it. Um, one, one afternoon I came out of the mall had been at the mall and, uh, I walked up to my car and it didn't have any dents. You know, it was, it was ugly, but it was whole. And I, as I approached the driver's side door, I looked to the left and the close to the fender, there was this very strange kind of indention and had kind of fractured. And it's like, what happened? Someone in the, in the parking lot walked up to me and said, there was someone, uh, who walked up to your car and started wailing on the side with their boot, then jumped up and down on top of the car. And um, I said, well, any idea? Like, I mean, I didn't hit any cars around me. And uh, I said, well, do you have any idea who they were, what was going on? And they said, uh, it was so-and-so. So I grew up in a small town. So they, I guess they recognized the person. And I don't know how I got the story put together, but apparently this was a father of a teenage daughter that went to my school who I, I didn't know her. I think she was in a different class than me. And he had mistaken, mistakenly thought I was her ex-boyfriend who had done her some kind of wrong. And so he was going to set the, put, put things right by wailing on my car, thinking it was the ex-boyfriend's car. So, oh my goodness. yeah, I mean, there's so many stories with the Reeds. I mean, just, that's just one of many, but you know, uh, yeah, pretty funny. But, but the Reeds took the beating and kept on going, huh? Kept on going. Yeah. Kept on going. What, it was was it one of these old cars that, um, that you had to flip the, the license plate back to fuel up? Do you remember those? Yes. Uh, I think that is, I think that's how I fueled that car. Yeah. I, you know, I had not thought about that, Mike, in quite a while. So, <laughs> so <laughs> the, the Reed sounds like yeah. so my first car was a, uh, was a 1983 Chevy Caprice classic. Oh, and yeah. I remember yeah. when I first went to fuel it up, I was so, I, I was utterly baffled. <laughs> I didn't know what to do. <laughs> I had to go and ask around. There were some other dads hanging out by the gas station. I was like, I don't know what to do here. <laughs> like, I don't know how to fuel how my car. It was so yeah. humiliating. I promise I know how to drive it. I just don't know how to put gas in it. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I was like, I, yes, uh, I'm a responsible adult here. Gosh, <laughs> that's so funny. Yeah. So, all right. Thanks for, thanks for sharing that. Of course. Um, Hey, so thanks again for for writing the unwavering pastor. Um, I think before we really dig into into the book, could you just clarify what do you mean by unwavering pastor, and could you share a little bit about what prompted you to write the book? Yeah, well, what I mean by unwavering pastor is not what for some people may come to mind, and that is an in, inflexible, hard nosed, you know, gutted out. Uh, on your own kind of leader. Uh, I would say that, you know, in, in one sense, I am, I am not an unwavering pastor. Um, <clears throat> you know, I, I think of um, Psalm, uh, Psalm 112, where, where uh, I think David says, you know, um, 
how does he say that the righteous shall not be moved. His heart is firm, steadfast. He will not be afraid of bad news. Hard. Um, his heart is trusts in the Lord. That there's a there's a way to not be afraid of bad news, whether it's criticism or suffering or you know heartache. That there's a way for the heart to kind of have a sense of security in suffering, um, to be firm and steadfast, and yet the emotions to rise and fall with the genuine difficulty and heartache of life. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what I'm trying to get at is that it's possible as Christians to have a heart that's firm that is strengthened by our belief in the character and goodness of our God and his closeness and suffering. And yet, you know, on one day be fine on the other day, be just, you know, uh, curled up on the couch or, you know, crying and spontaneously. So I think there's room for emotional latitude and suffering. And it's so important to acknowledge that as pastors for, for ourselves, you know, to have that, but it's also possible to navigate the suffering with a sense of God's unwavering commitment to us. And so an unwavering pastor isn't the one who is, you know, doesn't have emotional flux, who doesn't struggle. It's a, it's a, it's a pastor who is, has a sense in his soul of God's unwavering commitment to him in Christ. And therefore, he can, he can lead with the strength and mercy and kindness and presence of Christ in his life. Yeah. So... And you see this in in the Bible. And you see this in in Paul and John and many people. So <clears throat> um, that's yeah. So that's the the title. Or that's the idea behind the title. So I very much kind of crack open my own sufferings, my own undulating experience, uh, w- whether it's you know uh, engaging culture and sorting through kind of the difficulties that we're in politically, um, or just trying to cope with critics in my own wounds. So. Um, my hope is that I've able to put my arm around another pastor and say, "Hey, let's look at our our struggles and uh, let's do it with the Bible open and tend our wounds with the grace we find in, in, in yeah. Scripture." Um, how did it come about? Well, you know, we we've been through a lot the last three years, and I was looking back on, you know, this plan of this church, you know, about seventeen years ago. And I was like, man, we've been through so much with COVID and all the things. I'd love to try and just go back into my story well beyond the last three years, but include those and just help pastors um, treat their souls uh, in seasons of suffering and, and division in the church and in society. So, And um, I had written about 70% of the book, and I hit a wall. I was walking towards our church downtown, and I felt a decoupling of my heart from the church. No, I'd never had this sensation; had been through plenty of things. But I told my elders, and then within a week, it was like uh, my emotional rubber band had snapped. And I, the thought of walking into our church of preaching was just harrowing. That I would be responsible for people, you know, it was just the, there were no no reservoir. Mm. emotional reservoir to minister to people. And so my elders met me graciously in that and wept with me and they gave me two months off. And so it was kind of towards the end of those two months that I wrote the last 30% of the book. And uh, so that's kind of, kind of where the book came from. Yeah. 
So since the book has been kind of out out in uh, the big wide world for the last few months, uh, what are some common themes uh, that you've heard from people as you've talked with them and as you've, uh, I'm sure, gotten messages and emails and such from people? Yeah. Um, how is yeah. the book being received? And uh, could you share that? I've been very encouraged by the response. Uh, I had a pastor walk up to me at a conference a week ago, and he said, brother, thank you so much for writing this book. And he said, he began to quote passages back to me. And he said, this this book ministered to me because of my own heartache and suffering. And you talk about, you know, friends abandoning you, people that you thought were close to you just kind of disappearing and going poof in your life and ministry. He says, you know, I've gone through so much of that and you were, you were sharing that and you were, you were, you were saying, I'm not going to minister. I'm not going to get close to the church. You know, I'm not going to, I'm going to minister the gospel. I'm going to counsel, but I'm just not going to make friends in the church anymore. And you re- you were writing that. And then you said, you went to Psalm 66 and you were like, in God alone is my salvation. And you just, it just hit me like a ton of bricks. It's in God alone. Friends can't be salvation. Friends can't be a fortress in God alone (laughs) is my salvation. And uh, and so he, he seemed to have been profoundly helped by that particular discussion of, of being ghosted, being abandoned, you know, we're treated like religious commodities at time. And we are here for goods and services. We are here to do funerals and weddings because we love people and we believe in the covenant of marriage and we think death and life is sacred. Absolutely, we're here for that. But we're also human beings. And we also think that we're your friends and your brothers and, this, you know, the brothers and sisters. And so it's hurt, it hurts so much when people treat us as merely a dispenser of religious goods and services yeah. and not someone who loves and cares for the people in your life. So that that's one story, you know, uh, met with an entrepreneur this morning who is reading the book and he said, man, this shouldn't have been called the unwavering pastor. I mean, uh, you know, I, I, basically what you've gone through, we've all gone through. <laughs> He's like, we just need to call it a book for everybody. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. You know, um, I had a pastor and his wife, uh, come up to me and uh, you know introduce themselves and said I wanted my wife to meet you because she's been reading this book and she's been so helped through the pain and suffering of the last two years and that's been a real treasure you know to know that it's not it's not just helping pastors which is my heart's desire but it's also helping their wives make sense of what they've been yeah. through yeah. and begin to treat their wounds you know with with the gospel of grace so yeah there's a few of the stories you know, that I've, that I've had recently. Yeah. That's really encouraging. Um, mm. so, I mean, I just want to speak to the youth pastors who are listening and, um, just acknowledge, uh, especially, uh, these past few years has been really, um, painful and difficult for many of us in youth ministry, um, where there's so much pressure and tension, about what social justice issues do you address and what do you not with teenagers, especially when teenagers tend to be, you know, very much basically demanding you to address things. And, um, you know, but how do you navigate that uh, when kids disagree with their parents and then we're caught in the middle? Yeah. And then obviously the whole COVID stuff, um, I, I think that's obviously a, 
a parallel that a lot of youth workers um, and um, lead pastors can both identify the that struggle of what do we do while well, the schools are doing this, while well, that school is doing this, and that school is doing that, and these parents want that. It's just been, it's been a train wreck um, in, mm. in youth ministry these last few years on the heart and emotional level, um, and so yeah, um, I think every youth worker knows what it's like to be ghosted by a kid who you've discipled, and now all of a mm. sudden they're a junior, they got their license. And they're just done, and yeah. the parents kind of blame you. Um, so this is Oof. this is a really important message um, for for youth workers uh, to to read, and it's one of the reasons why I really wanted to make sure that that we had this conversation um, because yeah. you do such a good job um, navigating a difficult conversation because it's not just an objective conversation, right? Like. And, um, and yeah. leading us in the gospel through that. So, yeah, I just want to thank you for for your work and commend this this resource for the youth workers. I appreciate your you bringing that particular youth perspective. Like, you know, one of the things I talked about is like in the past few years we've we've been hit from the right and hit from the left. Yeah. Um, but for a youth pastor, you're not only hit from the right and the left; you're hit from different churches. Yeah, you're hit from the from your own church. From, from different schools, <laughs> from the youth, from the parents. I mean, and these are colliding timbers that that, that, that just crush a leader. And, yeah. you know, Paul in 2 Timothy is so frank about that experience. All who were in Asia abandoned him. Mm-hmm. This St. This Paul, you know, being like, I mean, gut level honest. Uh, you know, Demas did me great harm. Ale- Alexander Coppersmith did me great harm. Demas abandoned me for the love of this world. It's okay to say those kind of things. Yeah. And it's okay to feel the pain attached to those sentences. And can, can you imagine what the real conversation between Paul and Timothy was like? Mm-hmm. This is this is like scripture censored. <laughs> and it's it's like, you know, rated R emotions. Yeah. I don't know yeah. how to describe it. But, you know, it's just... And uh, you know, brothers, we have to we have to be honest about the pain, and we need to find people to confide in. Mm-hmm. Um, and the the remarkable thing is that that Paul is so brutally honest about all that, and yet at the same time he's not embittered. Yeah. At the same time, he is not abandoning those who have abandoned him. And this is remarkable. How do you do it? How do you do that? You know, I don't know that it was like like that for Paul. I mean, he's in prison. He's got some time to think. Um, this is Sage Paul at the end of his life. You know, he doesn't know the letters, but, you know, he had some time to think about these these wounds. So it's important that youth pastors take time, that they acknowledge, and they allow Christ to begin to redeem the pain. Yeah. So I, I think one of the things you said here is, is absolutely crucial um, in terms of Avoiding bitterness. Uh, could you, could you maybe just speak to the the danger and temptation of bitterness a little bit? Certainly, I mean, you know, if we're if we're honest about our wounds and our pain, it's it's um, if we we aren't able to filter those wounds and pain through a God who is not just sovereign but present and using our pain for 
redemptive, loving purposes, then we will find someone else to attribute ultimate blame to. Mm-hmm. And because that person cannot redeem the pain, in, in many cases are principally committed to never, uh, never reconciling, mm-hmm. then you are stuck and you have to be either despairing or angry. And both despair and anger can lead to intense bitterness uh, as we, we fail to turn our hearts towards a God who's sovereign, present, and redemptive in suffering. And we, uh, we, we sin- solely focus on the person who has hurt us. So, you know, I mean, I, I had a season where I would wake up in the morning, I would begin brushing my teeth, and in my mind, a, a carousel of critics would pop up. Faces of people who were currently criticizing me, things they've said, emails that they had written, all this kind of stuff. And, you know, so, and, and sometimes I had meetings scheduled with these people. And so as I was, I was brushing my teeth, I began to think about, you know, okay, what's the counter? How should I respond to what they're going to say? You know, how should scripture inform this? And I just went down this rabbit hole, sometimes of self-justification, sometimes of rehearsing arguments. But it never led me to a place of sweetness and tenderness, and and it it it, it, it moved me in the direction of bitterness. Yeah. Because the carousel of critics were dehumanized, um, they were a threat, um, they were a rational argument to be contended with, and all an attempt to protect my own hurting heart. You know. And so uh, I quickly realized this is not fruitful. <laughs> There's yeah. an awful way to start yeah. the day. <laughs> And so when the carousel popped up, I began praying for each face, each story. And, and I be, just begin to say things like, Lord, I cannot love this person the way that they need to be loved. Um, I, I cannot bring this person to repentance the way that they need to be brought to repentance. And, and whatever I need to learn from what they've said, help me to see where I need to turn to you in repentance. And that sweetened me you know it's not i didn't become best buds with any of those people but but it it changed the way that i saw them it changed the way that i began to think about them and you know as brothers and sisters in christ one of the things i talk about in the book is it's so important as pastors to not judge people from sin forwards but to see them from glory backwards and if i'm only viewing them from this flaw in this moment in their lives forwards I'm not seeing them the way Christ sees them. I'm not seeing them as their glorified self in Christ, which is how Christ chooses to see them. And he's not, he's not, he's not uh, unaware of their faults. And just as the way he sees us, clothed in righteousness, loves us with all the faults and flaws and sins that we don't see and that we do see. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that glor- remember that they are glorified saints. Not beginning with sin forwards, but glory backwards, and then beginning to pray for them by name. It just softened my heart to them, and it made me a tender, more tender shepherd in general. Yeah, that's a that's a really good word. Um, and I think that goes well with with this this line. Th- this is uh, this might be my, my favorite sentence in in the book, um, which is you know for my own personal baggage. Um, so you write, it is virtually impossible to make it through division without sinning. 
and Christ is gladly present to remedy that. Um, could you could you share a little bit more about um, what does that mean and what does that mean for us as as pastors and leaders and the examples that we're setting? Yeah. Well, I mean, division division in society and division in the church are uh, signs of satanic work and presence. Um, and Satan is seeking to steal, kill, destroy, to, to, to steal away sheep, to crush spirits, to destroy faith. So division is a hotbed of heartache, suffering, misunderstanding, confusion, it sounds a lot like a deceiver, accuser, you know. And when that is, when you're in the throes of that, um, and <laughs> you're responding to personal hurt or criticism, um, I mean, I find it impossible to not sin um, because of my pride. For, for me, it's like I want to be right. And a lot of times I think I am right. I have the Bible verses for it. I have the theology books for it, you know. And there's a there, there, there's a self-righteousness that can be attached to being right. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there um, that that's not everyone's struggle in division. Some people, their struggle is not they want to be right. Um, it's that they want to be loved. And they want others to feel loved. And so what breaks them down is the lack of love. And so they're willing to abandon what's right in order to feel loved and to give love, which is, as we know from Ephesians 4, you, you know, you speak the truth in love. They go hand in hand. Right. So um, in division, you might be a truth person, you might be a love person, uh, but you're going to have a particular vulnerability that's going to lead to sin and temptation, you know? Um, and so one, one of those for me is like, I want to be right. You know, if, if you just listen to what I have to say, if you just read the Bible instead of that article blog or listen to that podcast, you know, you'd be set free. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, it's, it's, people are more complicated than that. Yeah. You know, it's not, if it was that easy, just take a pill of truth in the morning, you know, be kind of robotic, you know, yeah. kind of be, you know, brave new world, you know, yep. take the bliss pill and we're all good. Uh, but but we're complex. We're emotional. We're rational. We're spiritual, and there's a beauty to that. But all of that has been touched by the fall, and that includes us, not just the people that have hurt us. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I think it, knowing your own proclivity in division and where you tend to abandon abandon Christ in favor for feeling right and justified or feeling loved is important. And, you know, a lot of the sin for me comes out, not verbally, not things that I say to critics or people that I feel like have misunderstood me. It doesn't come out in antics or online rants. It, it remains in the privacy of my mind. Mm -hmm. You know, if only they would do this. Yeah. I can't believe they haven't gotten over that. You know, these people are awful. And then you just go down and you're suddenly you're in the sermon in the mount calling your brother Raka, you know, your your name calling. Mm -hmm. And it may not be curse words, but you're 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 
running roughshod over, uh, you know, a brother, eternal brother or sister. Yeah. So, yeah, that's kind of what I'm getting at. It's like, it's, it's, everyone's going to sin in division. There's the world, the flesh, the devil, you know, we've touched on those. And so these are opportunities to turn to Christ. I love Robert, Robert Murray McShane for every look at sin, look 10 times at Christ. These are opportunities to run into the depth and mercy and presence and beauty and kindness of Christ and to be changed, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. And uh, it's in those, those seasons of heartache and division and suffering where we often become closer to Christ than we ever have been before. It is an invitation to intimacy and to, and to transformation, you know? So, yeah. And that's what I mean. Christ is gladly present for that. He is not holding his nose going, I can't believe you as a minister could have that thought. Yeah. He knew it before we said it or thought it, you know, mm-hmm. um, he is, his arms are open. He's moving towards us, not away from us in our, in our bitterness and our anger and our sin. He is moving towards us. Yeah. And gladly present, but we have to turn around and say, "This is who I really am." Embrace me, forgive me, change me. And he is joyfully present for that, not reluctantly. That is that is that is good news. <laughs> good news indeed. So, um, I mean, one of one of the the opportunities that conflict provides is the opportunity to um, lead in peacemaking and th- this ministry of reconciliation um, that we've been called to. Um, I, I sometimes get concerned, um, oftentimes get concerned as a youth pastor about what example uh, do our students have to look up to uh, as a model mm. of uh, peacemakers and for healthy conflict resolution, especially in such a, a cancel culture. Um, if I don't like you, then I'm just gonna, you know, whatever. It's fine. I got plenty of other people on, you know, yeah. my own social network here to, to hang with. Um, so like, how do we, as, as pastors, I know you're, you're also a dad, um, of a few high schoolers and, so as a pastor, as a father, as a writer, um, how do you how do you think through the example that we're setting for the next generation in peacemaking and conflict resolution? Could you just kind of riff on that for a minute, few minutes? Sure. You know, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. So it is it is a a hallmark virtue of a follower of Jesus. It is part of the light that is on the city of the hill that people see and give glory to our father. And so it is imperative that we are peacemakers. Yep. Um, and the, you know, all of the beatitudes come with a heavenly promise that is breaking into the presence. So we are sons of God. We are daughters of God. And if we live as sons and daughters of God, there's a way to make peace that is, is does not snub justice. Um, if we don't, then our attempts at peace will probably be a mockery of justice. Um, or we just, uh, won't even, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll be, we'll be angry makers, conflict makers, you know? So, um, yeah, a couple different ways this kind of plays out is, 
you know, we were getting into it a little bit earlier, but, you know, in conflict, there's typically two kinds of people. One person wants to be right. Um, and the other person, they value being right more than the relationship. The other person values relationship more than being right. So if we want to be peacemakers in conflict, we have to begin with ourselves and acknowledge our, our, our inclination yeah. in conflict. Yeah, that's huge. Um, in this, in, in this I, what do I want most? Do I want to be right or do I want to preserve the relationship? Mm-hmm. Neither of those is hiding in Jesus. Neither of those is flourishing and shalom for all parties involved. <laughs> you know, and so to, to acknowledge that, that this is my, this is how I come at conflict and to re- repent of that. Yeah. To repent of that, even b- before you have your sit down, you know, with someone uh, to, to say, Lord, I really want to be right. I want them to say the right thing. I want them to pull out all the arrows. I want them to, I want justice and I want to be treated with dignity. Good longings, longings and prayers that should go to God who, who fights, who's given us dignity and fights for our vindication. He is our advocate. Um, and to say, but Lord, I want that more than I want you. And I want that more than I even care kind of about where they are. And then for the person who wants relationship, they don't even want to come to the meeting. <laughs> you know, they're, they're, they're just upset that the relationship, can't we just paper over it? You know, can't love covers a multitude of sins. Can we just cover over this one? Not if it keeps popping up. Love does cover a multitude of sins, but if that keeps popping up in your heart, then love isn't covering anything. You're just denying the opportunity for reconciliation. Yeah. You're, you're just holding a thin view of relationship. And just saying, can't we just get along? And so you're loving comfort. This person's loving right. You're loving comfort. You're loving social acceptance. And the thing that's beautiful about the gospel is if you're a son or a daughter of God, you are free to walk into a conflict and say, I'm wrong. Not demand to be right, but that I'm wrong. In fact, let me begin by telling you how I'm wrong. I have, I have impugned you in my heart and mind. I have said things to other people that I shouldn't have said. Would you forgive me? That's how you begin conflict. Not by pointing across the table, but by drawing a circle around yourself and saying, this is where I was wrong. You know? And, and from that place of humility, the soil of reconciliation gets stirred up. And there, there begins to be hope for peace. So if both parties do that, you know, if the other person says, you know what? I feel like I really need to tell you this but I didn't want to do it because I didn't want to risk the relationship. Your relationship is more important to me than you. I value the relationship more than you. And I'm, I'm sorry. Uh, and, and, I, and I, I prayed for you. I prayed. This is really hard for me, but I want to come to you and share this because I care about you more than our relationship. Mm-hmm. Well, how do you do that? If relationship is everything for you, yeah. there's got to be someone who loves you perfectly who whose relationship is never under threat who will always approve of you and be by your side jesus christ your heavenly father you you are under his beloved his his love his accept and that frees you to move into a peacemaking relationship where you say here's where i'm wrong and then that sets the stage for actual peacemaking mm-hmm. you know and it makes christ central yeah. not being right or being loved right central yeah, that, that's so good. It should be 
so easy for Christians to confess that we're sinners, shouldn't it? Right? <laughs> I mean, sometimes uh, I just, yeah, I, and I get it, I get it, you know, I get that's that's a nice idea, but yeah. I mean, if if we're if we're all self-proclaimed Christians and we've been baptized and we're following the Lord, that is implicitly saying I am a sinner. So we shouldn't be shocked yeah. when we sin against each other and when we confess our sin to one another. And um, yeah, so yeah, you know, it, rem- it reminds me of a comment of a, a mutual friend of ours from from Gordon Conwell back in those days, John Stanrich. Mm-hmm. He was uh, married, had kids. We didn't have any kids. We were married. And he was talking about this marital conflict. And he was up, there was upset about, you know, someone didn't do the dishes. And he said to me, man, if I really believe in total depravity, I should expect to, to fail to, to meet my wife's needs. Like, I, I, I shouldn't, and I should expect my wife to fail to meet my needs. Mm-hmm. Like, I should begin with an, a, a humble awareness yeah. of who I am in this relationship instead of, you didn't do the things we agreed on in our marriage. You didn't, you know, you didn't meet my expectation. Well, of course they didn't meet your expectations, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Uh, I'm a sinner in need of grace. You know, just the, the, the humble beginning place, you know, has that theology really penetrated your soul? Well, then you, you'll hold expectations loosely and you, you'll, you'll consider who you actually are, mm-hmm. you know? So it's, it is true. I mean, it, it's it's uh, easy to paper over that, isn't it? It sure is. So as we as we wrap up our conversation, I just want to thank you for um, for being who you are, and thank you for your heart, thank you for your ministry. And um, is there a- any closing word that you'd like to offer, uh, maybe to y- some youth workers who are uh, in the thick of it right now? Yeah, thanks, Mike. Yeah, I mean, guys, thank you for your ministry. There, the shifts in our society are so acute and so difficult. You're, you are ministering in a hinge moment in our country. And the future generation needs your presence. It needs your listening ear. It needs the gospel that you hold so precious. So don't give up. Um, the Lord will not give up on you. Um, he, he is committed to you. Do say things that hurt. Do find people that give you life. Make time for those that can minister to you, not just hurt you. Um, seek out relationships that are life-giving and refreshing. And stay the course. Christ will not abandon you. The parents might abandon you. The church might abandon you. The students might abandon you. But Christ, Paul, Paul says, the Lord stood by me and strengthened me. And he is standing by you, ready to strengthen you. Just admit your weakness, and his strength will begin to flow. Thank you for your ministry. Amen. Thank you, Jonathan, for joining us. Yeah, my pleasure. Well, thanks for joining us for this conversation. Please visit youthpastortheologian.com to learn more about our resources. You can find us on social media at Youth Theologian. We also have an active Facebook group where you can ask questions, share articles, and generally encourage fellow youth pastor theologians who are in the trenches with you. We'd sure appreciate it if you'd be so kind as to subscribe, leave a review, or even recommend this podcast to fellow youth workers. 
You can also subscribe to get new articles delivered to your inbox and to ensure that you don't miss any fresh content by checking out our website at youthpastortheologian.com. Most of all, we appreciate your ministry and your partnership in the gospel. If there's a topic that you'd like us to address, or if you have an article to submit for the blog, then you can also share those on our website by following the submissions tab. In the meantime, keep your eyes on Jesus, and we'll see you next week.